Good day, dear listeners. Steve Prada here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And my guest today is Stephen Sachs, the founder of FundingNev, which is uniquely first looks at free cash sources, such as R&D, tax credits, grants, and efficiencies before moving on to laws and equity. Stephen, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Steve. I'm really pleased to, to be on. Well, excited to have you as you, you're calling from the UK. You have a different perspective, plus your entrepreneurial journey is also very exciting. So tell us a little bit how you got into the funding business, the property business, what got you going to becoming an entrepreneur? Sure. So I went into the fashion industry direct from school. I didn't go to university. And over a period of time, I bought and sold a number of different businesses and also went into some other industries such as furnishings and logistics. And, uh, well, I had a bit of a blow up actually around the time of my 50th birthday. So I had a furnishing business that failed at the same time. I, I would say as a result of Brexit, but actually it's a result of management decisions taken time of financial stress. I shouldn't try and blame External circumstances, ultimately, take the can, because ultimately I was the guy in charge. In any event, I remember having a number of difficult funding conversations and sitting on one side of the table and looking longingly at the guys I was negotiating with, thinking, you know what, I'm sitting on the wrong side of the table here. Maybe in my next career, I should consider opportunities where I'm on that side of the table and, you know, I'm able to go home. And to sort of forget all this because I was under it was time of high stress for me. And then I had the opportunity uh, in the beginning of 2017 and I set up funding now specifically as an opportunity, as a way for other people to avoid having a lot of the same issues which I'd had and also to take advantage of the knowledge which I gained over a sort of 30 year career. And yeah, I haven't looked back, to be honest. It's gone from strength to strength. We've grown a lot. And now we work in a number of different industry verticals, offering the kind of support you mentioned in your introduction. Yeah, it's a very interesting angle that you took in this business because most of the time when I see these businesses approach me, they are pushing laws primarily and high interest roles and, you know, the type of laws which can be very uncomfortable to deal with. And I love it that I saw in your website that you have, you basically offer an audit for people and then you basically come with suggestions. It's more of a consulting business on top of the funding business, or maybe it's a combination of the two. So I really like that. So let's get into your business a little bit later. First, I want to get you know, my favorite subjects out of the way, the management blueprint. And, and I love it that you mentioned the pre, in our pre-interview that you are using franchising to expand, to grow your businesses. So. I have two questions about it. The first one is buy franchising. And the second one is how do you know that a business is even suitable for franchising? So the first question is why franchising? You say, yeah. <laughs> well, why franchising? I grew tired over time of management and specifically dealing with people whose motivation might be different to my own. So, you know, in 40 odd years or get, yeah, if I get 40 odd years of my working career, honestly, I've had half a day off through sickness and that's because I got run over by a car while I was driving the bike. 
literally, I have never taken a day off. And I found for when I had some of my businesses and I had lots of employees, you know, taking days off for sickness was kind of a regular thing. It was like almost additional holiday. You know, over here, you know, sickness is generally paid. So it's basically an additional holiday day. And you you have to deal with all sorts of petty issues in management. And I just lost, I lost patience for it. And that was when I made this change in 2017, I thought to myself, I don't really want to continue to manage in this way. I'd much rather give people a vision and opportunity and have them come along for the journey. And I found that I think it was a really good way of achieving that. Um, and so it's proven actually. So to grow a business, the series of similar and parallel business partners is much easier than to try and lead a business from the front with a number of people behind you who are not necessarily pulling at the same speed that you are. Yeah, I love this idea in franchising that you're essentially tapping into the entrepreneurial energy of your franchisees. And uh, you know, after we talk, I talked, I started reading a book on franchising. And one of the things that I read was this idea that some companies who start franchising, they, they do both corporate expansion and franchising. And in some territories where corporate expansion would not work because they just couldn't generate an ROI, a franchisee can create that ROI. I had the client in the past who, who basically had this figured out this franchise where he could go into really small towns, like two or 3,000 people, and would even work there. It was like a furniture slash home decoration type franchise. So, so I love that idea. So how do you know that the business is even franchisable? How do you know a business is franchisable? I guess a business needs to have an operating manual in order to make it franchisable. So, you know, if you can explain to somebody what you're doing, if you can write it all down and create a blueprint for that business and somebody can follow that blueprint, then it's franchisable. And I think that's most businesses are, yeah, unless you've got something which is kind of entirely reliant on your ability. I let you're a forward, for example. I mean, Elton John is not franchising because he's Elton John, right? But you know, the a theater the, the, where he performs, well, that's franchisable because that's a series of assets and liabilities of business, right? Um, you put it in the right place, you, you do the marketing, you know, Elton John comes to play your theater. That, that, that can work. So I think that. Yeah, most conventional businesses are franchisable, but staying individuals that have high levels of IP are not. That's interesting. So, so what are the success criteria for a franchise to be uh, to really work? The what criteria? Sorry, what are the success factors? Are the success criteria? criteria? Well, I think that the more cookie cutter, the better. You know, I mean, the best example, you know. Is, Michael Keaton in the film, The Founder, which is just everybody's ground zero or franchising. Have you seen that film, Steve? But you're familiar with the McDonald's story, right? Of course. So, yeah, it's the film of the McDonald's story. And I, oh, I, I saw know. that. Um, yes. Sorry, I saw that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, The Founder. So, you know, it demonstrates how you know, you've got these two guys out in California smashing it. Um, but they don't really know what they're doing or why, how they're doing it. But nonetheless, you know, people are traveling for miles to get their burgers. 
And this guy comes in and he works out what it is they're doing, how they're doing it, and how to, what the blueprint is. And then he starts franchising it. And then he becomes the founder. Actually, his skill supplants that of the original McDonald's brother. And, you know, that has been the key to their success moving forward. That and the fact that they worked out they're often in the property business and not in the burger business. That's where, how they really made the money. So I, w- I would recommend anybody kind of interested in franchising to watch that movie. It's it is great. Really, really great film. Yeah. Ray Kroc is a vicious guy. I remember that scene where he basically, he buys out the McDonald's brothers completely and then he demolishes. The first thing, no, actually, he first sets up a McDonald's just next to their original shop. Yeah. <laughs> he can't use the name anymore. So they have to call it something else. And, and then he may, he, Eventually, he demolishes. I think he, he runs it into the ground and buys it and demolishes. Yeah, he's a great. It's a, not necessarily a great business, a great movie about business ethics, but certainly a great, great, very entertaining movie. Anyway, it's, it's really, really yeah. good film. It's something I can watch several times. I think. Yeah, it shows that it's not the idea that it's the execution that counts. So, other than a blueprint, what about branding? Is branding important? Is IP important? Intellectual property in franchising? I mean, is it just a blueprint? I create the process and then off I go or, or I need more than that? I can't think of many successful fr- or any successful franchises that don't have IP, even though s- some of the franchises one sees nowadays, they're not well known. I mean, McDonald's is obviously a very well-known brand for, you know, one of the most valuable brands in the world. And you see franchises, garden maintenance, for window cleaning, for dog walking. I mean, it's like literally everything's franchised nowadays. Is the branding important for those? Yeah, I'd say to an extent, but not to the same extent that it is for McDonald's. I mean, as they grow, yeah, of course it will be. So I think that the IP and the branding becomes increasingly important as, as the brand grows, obviously. At the beginning, it's probably not very important at all. And you also talked about the two types of franchises. You said the blue color and the white color. Yeah. Franchise. What is the difference between the two, and yeah. why are they different? <clears throat> well, so if you take, I mean, the, probably one of the biggest white collar franchises in in the world is Action Coach, run by a gentleman named Brad Sugars, who's an Australian chap now. I think he's in Las Vegas, Nevada, and there are something like it's way in excess of one thousand business coaches that tra- trade under the Action Coach banner across the world, and. Each of them brings with them their personal experience, but then uses a standardized set of tools in order to deliver a coaching or mentoring service. So if I was an action coach, Steve, and you all were action coach too, and we were delivering those services, there's no question we would deliver them in a slightly different way. We'd put our own spin on it. However, if I've got my McDonald's franchise here in London, and you've got one over there, so you're in Virginia? Virginia, yeah. Yeah, in Virginia. Then you can bet your bottom dollar that my Big Macs and your Big Macs are going to be entirely the same. Literally, there will be no difference. My fries are the same as your fries. My, my Coke's the same as yours. You know, so there is no, literally no room deviation in a franchise like that. Cannot, even if you've got the best idea in the world for a burger that's or an improvement on a Big Mac, then you can't run McDonald's. You, you've got to do something else entirely. You know, rather like the McDonald's brothers and Ray Kroc, what we were talking about earlier. Whereas 
you can't realistically deliver coaching services or mentoring services from a book. You, you've got to put your own spin on it. Otherwise, there's no credibility to it. So they, they are different, quite a bit different. Okay, well... I could spend the rest of this uh, podcast and probably uh, two more episodes on this topic, but let's uh, let's switch gears here and talk a little bit about founding Nev. So, so tell me how it works. I mean, how did you come up with the idea of not just pushing laws, but actually listening to the customer and figuring out what they need and help them to get some grants and and, and other uh, <laughs> more economic no. sources? And how do you make the business model work? Well. I think it works because we build up credibility with clients over time. It might not be the quickest get-rich scheme ever because sometimes we walk away from stuff. Sometimes we advise people, now it's not a good time for funding for you. I mean, an excellent example of that is a business that we saw two or three years ago that was in the stack business. So they were manufacturing chips, but not potato chips, like chips made out of kale, made out of parsnip. You know, made out of other types of vegetables. And they had two distinct distributions for their product. One was low margin, very big chain of sandwich shops in, in around London and the UK, which was low margin, but big volume. And the other was their own brand, which was the smaller part of their business, which was high margin and a much lower volume. It's not an unusual scenario. In any event, they're Premises were based in North London, were around 30,000 square foot. They had great machinery with a mechanized, highly mechanized, creating these snacks, bagging them, sending them out for distribution. And they were working this machinery 24-7. So literally, they were maximum efficiency, but they were losing money. And they were losing a negative margin around about 10%. And when they came to us, they wanted to investment or borrow money in order to expand the operation to get past break even and start making money. But when we looked at it, we suggested to them that actually a much better solution might be just to increase their prices. We worked out that a 5% increase in price across all of their production would, would be much more better. We would get them into a profitable situation like immediately. And they were very concerned. And pre the current economic situation where inflation is kind of baked in, you know, we're now in a relatively high inflation environment. And of course, for years prior to that, where there was literally no inflation, it's very difficult for people to increase their prices. Well, now it's like a normal thing. So they were very worried that they were going to lose their biggest customer. And ultimately, they did lose their biggest customer, as it happens. But they were able to replace that business, for at least initially incrementally, and then by creating capacity quite quickly with much higher margin, better quality business. And they didn't need to either dilute themselves or take on additional debt. So actually, we didn't earn very much from that appointment, but now we're highly trusted and it's easy for us to go back in there and to create other opportunities for them, which we might, which you may want to get paid for. So yeah, it's not necessarily accepting the client because often they have free a preordained idea about what they think. They know what the problem is, got no money. They think they know what the solution is, but we find that you really need to tease that out and you need to challenge the client around that. And often their solution is not necessarily the right solution. Yeah, I mean, I love this idea of uh, this is basically positioning yourself as a trusted advisor. 
you've come up with solutions. You're not pushing a certain product that you get a commission for necessarily, but you're looking at, okay, what's best for this client? And then you bring your experience of the market and the grants and you know, other funding sources, create a tailored plan for this client. And even if there's nothing out there, at least they know that this is not an option. They should waste their time on looking for grants because you know, they have to go for the second best. So I love that thing. So, so Stephen, we are coming up to the end of this show, but I'd really like to ask you before we wrap up about this uh, kind of movement that you started by setting up these, what you call cup nights in London, which is about failed entrepreneurial ventures. So how did this come about and what kind of audience do you have who is attracted to, to watch this? I personally, you know, in my experience, early in my career, we had the big failure. We tried to sell a business. We fell flat on our faces. And, and because my business was new, that was the only story I had. And they invited me to talk to this, to this surface. And I told this, you know, vulnerably, I shared this story. My client was there as well. And actually, we got a great feedback. And I got a couple of clients out of that, that they trusted us for being vulnerable there. So, so t- tell me how this come about and, uh, and who the audience are and how are you, you know, what is your goal with this movement that you created? Okay, so the first thing is, I'm not going to be like Ray Kroc and try and take the glory because I didn't create it. I've licensed it. So essentially, it's that kind of franchise. It was actually created by four guys in Mexico City about 10 years ago. They operate in around 300 cities around the world, including the United States and a number oh, of different okay. cities. And yeah, I licensed for London. We've got other parts of the movement that are also in the United Kingdom, but it's in, I say, 300 cities around the world. And it's exactly that. It's that when you're it, in generally in business, if you go to like networking events, for example, there's this kind of, we've got a kind of the business bullshit suit on. So it's, hey, Steve, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm really successful at this. That. And the, you know, you've got an elevator. This elevator pitch is a minute to basically talk yourself up as much as possible. But if, you know, once we've done our elevator pitches and we've had a chat, I mean, maybe we get on quite well. I think we might do, Steve. And we go for a drink afterwards and we know we get each other and we meet up again. In time, when we really trust each other, Maybe I might tell you about some of my failures and you might tell me about some of yours. Maybe you'll be drunk or something. You go, you know what? I really fucked up with this, whatever it is. And then that's kind of when we really get to know each other and really trust each other. So what? The whole purpose of fuck up nice is to do that bit first. You know what? Leave all the bullshit. Here are four people that I'm going to present to you. I'm going to talk about their fuck ups. And some of them have been horrendous. Previous. In the previous meeting, one guy was in prison for six years for frauds because he was like British version of Jordan Belfort, actually creating something which was like, unsustainable. And in the next one I've got, which is next week, I've got a woman there who's talking work. She was running a business in Ukraine, in person in Ukraine up until February last year, until Putin started killing people outside her premises, you know, so literally they had to close down immediately. So yeah, it's kind of people talking about their failure, whether it was their fault, obviously in this woman's case, not her fault at all. It's just not really unfortunate set of circumstances, but nonetheless, we have to, you know, have to play the hand that we dealt with. And then afterwards, on that basis, I invite people to network, but to network starting talking about your failure. So look, you know, go to the turn of the person next to you, tell them what your favorite brand of ice cream is, and then just tell them about your biggest fuck up. 
and it's amazing. We have to kick people out at midnight. They're, they're, everybody's talking. Everybody, it's like therapy. Everybody loves X. And, people, and as you rightly say, people get business out of it as well. People build real relationships and they do business as a result of it. So it's like, I didn't invent it. I do love it. And it's kind of, there's no real money in it for me, but I love doing it. Definitely, I've got clients out of it myself. Yeah, there's not a, not, no better teacher than failure, right? That's the best teacher of all. I mean, I had yeah, the cheapest failure, of course, is the one somebody else did rather than actually doing it yourself. You so you can find out about that and then not do it. Great. I mean, I had my share of failures when I ran my business 10 years ago. I, I sold it and I never thought that I would actually someday make money out of having failed so many times and having had so many upsets in my business. But I've seen, written about them in my books. I've spoken about it to audiences. I regularly help my clients who are facing similar situations. I tell them, hey, this is what happened. This is what I did. This is what I should have thrown. And it really helps them connect the dots and it helps them avoid some of these landmines. So I think it's a great, it's a great one. I'm going to look into it to see whether there's anything like that in Virginia and, and, and check it out. Um, so in parting, Stephen, anything else you would like to share with the audience that you feel like it's important to know about, whether it's business failure, whether it's, you know, starting a new business, whether it's franchise, the franchising route. If you have any famous last words, I'd love to have it. I don't normally ask for this, but in your case, I'd love to have that. Okay. So I'll tell you what I'm really thinking about at the moment. And that is that I think that the, sorry, Steve, how old are you? 55. Down 57. I think that the number one business opportunity in the world right now is the baby boomer retirement sale. And we're seeing businesses, average age of the founders is 62, so slightly older than both you and I, but people not really understanding the value of their equity and what they've built up over time in unsexy industries. So we're seeing, um, I don't know, food and beverage, hospitality, engineering, construction, people getting tired, getting to the end of their career, not having a second tier of management that they can do some sort of management buyout for with, literally just thinking of closing down. And these businesses, we're seeing a number of people in the market buying and building as a strategy using leveraged finance, often supplied by the vendor. And I'm seeing people build large groups super quickly. And it's a thing I'm only seeing now in the last year or two. And I would advise all of the people listening to this to think very carefully about that as a strategy moving forward in the next five years. So I think it's going to be super powerful. So it's kind of a buy and build strategy for marginal companies or, you know, it's, it's basically cobbling together from, you know, marginally profitable companies. Not marginally profitable. Not marginally profitable. So I mean, let me give you an example, right? So I spoke recently to a Scottish guy who I met who was a truck driver. So this guy's got literally no business experience. All his experience is driving a truck. Went through a very difficult divorce and became the sole carer for his young daughter. He went, he kind of read up on this and he did some training in May of 2021. In January of 22, so just over a year ago, he wrote to 1,200 business owners in his industry who were in logistics, trucking, and uh, asking them whether they'd be interested in selling their business. And he got some responses. 
And he went down and visited one particular one, which is the British Midlands. It's around about 300 miles from where he lives. So he went down with the heads of terms already packed because he wasn't going to go down a second time. The business was, had a revenue of around £7 million, so it's about $8 million, $9 million, making a profit of around 10%, so close on a million dollars a year. He offered the guy, or they did a deal of $1.7 million, so okay, $2 million, of which he was able to get the first, say, million dollars out of invoice finance. He raised further $300,000, which was cash in the business's own bank account. Balance 700,000 was funded by a deferred consideration. So the guy taking paid over five years. Having acquired the business, he then paid himself or the business paid him, I think it was 80 or 90,000 pounds deal fee, 80 or 90,000 dollars deal fee. That's cash that he got for putting no money to spend in the first place. And also leased him a brand new Porsche Taycan for it, which I don't know what it costs in America over here is about 150,000 dollars. So. He having he did a deal with no cash down and wound up with a business turning over close to ten million dollars a year and a Porsche Taycan and eighty thousand dollars in his bank account. And he has now gone on to do some further acquisitions. And by the end of this year, he reckons he's gonna have a group turning over around about thirty million with a three million dollar profit, most of which, to be fair, is now paying off debt and paying off the cost of acquiring in the first place. He's employed his former boss and his former boss's boss in this kind of business. And he had no money at the outset. So that's what I'm saying. Okay, that's exciting. So maybe that's a, another episode of the podcast, but it sounds like this, it's similar to a distressed home buying, perhaps, kind of concept, but I love it. It's not distressed that the, the vendor is highly motivated. They're going to retire, right? So they, but then they can close the business down and walk away from it and liquidate it or else someone will come in and offer them something for it. So is that what's the maximum they can get? So it's not the business stress, it's maybe that the owners are stressed. Okay, well, that's a really great idea and opportunity and I definitely encourage your listeners to, to check this out. So Stephen, thanks for coming on the show and enjoyed the chatting with you and uh, you know, wish you a great evening in London. Thank you very much, Steve.